0: at one of my dad's friends and uh, his wife made spaghetti. I was like, what the hell is this? It's delicious, you know? It's delicious and they had a Nintendo as well. I'd never played a Nintendo, man. And, uh, you know, he was like stepping into a new world at, at seven years old.
1: Hey, this is Kentaro, and you are listening to the Bitcoin Renaissance Podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with my friend, Ricardo. He is a very sharp guy who's had a lot of success in the e-commerce business. We cover a lot of things here, from growing up in Portugal and immigrating to Switzerland, to building his online business and his investment strategy. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ricardo. Ricardo. Well, very good, man. Shall we? Shall we do this thing? Yeah, Uh it's uh, just, a I guess, a continuation of what the conversation
0: we're having downstairs.
1: Yeah, man. So uh thanks a lot for being here, dude. And uh, it's been uh, fun chatting with you yesterday and today. And uh yeah, you're uh, you're one of my very first guests, and I'm I'm grateful for you making the time for me, dude.
0: Yeah, let's see how this ages. Hopefully, in ten years, you know, not, someone on Twitter is not going to come back and uh, and pick out whatever we said here that that at this point in time was still accepted and uh, and in 10 years time it's it's a little bit more controversial and uh, and I get kicked from my uh from my high ranking corporate job at least the second part is a little bit less likely because i don't see myself working in a big corporation
1: yeah i can't make any mistakes maybe we'll have to go to plan b and uh, work for microsoft one day. So. yeah
0: yeah and even if the banks uh kick me out you know hopefully by then defi will be far enough that uh they won't be as important. Yeah. B-
1: Bitcoin will make us free. I hope so, yes. So, Ricardo, um, yeah, we were we were talking earlier about, um, earlier on in your life, uh, I know that you were born in Portugal and you moved to uh, Switzerland when you were very young. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and uh, you know, how was that, making that change? Uh, why did your family decide to move to Switzerland?
0: I mean, it wasn't really much of a decision besides it was more of a necessity, right? Portugal to this day has one of the lowest per capita incomes in in Europe. My parents, like many Portuguese, decided that you know that was not for them, and that they wanted to to move abroad. And it was more than my my parents; it was my dad, because when I was born, he was working in Belgium as a welder, um, already abroad. And uh, I think there's a lot of Portuguese people in that area, in the Benelux area. I think. Paris alone has a million Portuguese people uh, in the in the surrounding areas, and then you have a lot of people in Luxembourg and Belgium also working there. So yeah, I was born in Porto. My mom comes from the countryside. My dad comes from a small suburb outside of Porto, which wasn't really a suburb back then. It was still a little village. And uh, I grew up on my grandparents' farm for the first seven years. My mother was living with her mother-in-law, so that already shows how strong she was. And... Uh, yeah, man. I mean, the first six, seven years, I was uh, it was fun. I have great memories of being on the farm with my my grandparents. You know, they had goats. You know, it, it's so funny because um, he wanted to be a good guy and and he sold the land to the state to build a road in between his farm and kind of messed up the whole thing. But he wanted to leave like a good thing behind or, or whatever. So. Uh, That doesn't really exist anymore, and the house is somewhat abandoned now. Like many houses in Portugal, when once the parents pass away, you know the kids just they have their own houses, and they don't really want to go back to the countryside anymore. So yeah, my mom was alone for uh, for seven years. My dad would come, yeah, for for the summer vacations, you know. And I mean, for you to understand, my dad had a BMW back then, which was like a huge deal in our village. So it it shows you, you know, how I wouldn't say poor, but the average thing was to have like some shitty Renault that. Could barely uh, even start up and uh so here's this kid never ate pizza in my life never ate spaghetti in my life and then i get thrown into switzerland you know one of the richest countries in the world and everything is controlled not controlled uh, regulated i think that's the better word for it and uh man i remember going to to eat at at one of my dad's friends and uh his wife made spaghetti I was like, what the hell is this? It's delicious, you know? It's delicious. And they had a Nintendo as well. I'd never played a Nintendo, man. And, uh, you know, it was like stepping into a new world at seven years old. So that's really where things started off. And then going to school somewhere where you don't speak the language on the first day. Everybody's telling you and you only know how to say yes. You know, kids speak to you. You say yes, they laugh. Kids speak to you. You say no. They laugh even more. Kids are cruel. But it needed to be done because, I mean, if you imagine my mother living for six, seven years, raising me up and my dad only coming for the summer vacations, although still being on the phone with me every week as much as we could because phone calls back then were very expensive across countries. I could fully understand why my mother said, OK, we have to make this sacrifice because otherwise there, there will be no family eventually, you know, because this is not really how a family looks like. But it took also even more sacrifice for my mother because for me, I'm, I'm a seven-year-old kid. I'll soak up the language within a year. My mother, it took took her 10 years, you know, right. and she had to go from being a secretary in a, in a known company in Portugal to being a cleaning lady. So that humbles you when you um, go from that to, to being a cleaning lady and you see your mom making all the effort that she did with a leg that is just weak, you know, with weak legs. I mean, that puts in a lot of work ethic into you that, you know, you never want your wife to go through that. You never
1: want, you know, your kids to have to, to deal with, with that type of stuff. So, yeah. And when, you know, so you were seven when you moved to, uh, to Switzerland and, and were you conscious of all that? Like the fact that your mom left a good job and, you know, now had to, you know, start fresh again. And
0: yeah, we all left good stuff behind, you know, in in Portugal, I was, uh, let's say the teacher's pet, you know, I, I was like, I had already done the first grade and I go to Switzerland and suddenly everything I do is wrong. So certainly, man, I mean, I remember coming back home after the first week of school and I came back home crying, begging my mom to go back to Portugal. It wasn't fun. It wasn't uh, easy. It was actually, you know, if I look back at it, it's probably the time where um, why I have such a strong bond with her, you know? My dad had already been there for, for a couple of years, you know, he spoke a couple of words of German. He had his work. He would go to his work. You know, my mom had to basically find like cleaning jobs and it just, uh, you know, so we were home most of the time. So we 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 felt it. very strongly, but I mean, you know, you told me you you also were moving around all the time. So you kind of know how it
1: is. So you have to find a new social circle wherever you go. Hundred percent. Yeah, I moved a lot when I was young, and uh, yeah, you, you just have to start over every time. And uh, I, you know, in my case, like I, I didn't, you know, it, it seemed normal to me. Like it didn't seem anything unusual to me when I would, uh, you know, move every couple of years and uh, and at least in my case it was always within the US so i didn't have to you know learn a new language but uh, you know i was a little chubby asian kid back then and uh, yeah kids you know making fun of you on the bus and stuff yeah i, I remember that stuff and uh, it, it hardens you i think and you don't realize it does but i i, I do think it does
0: yeah it either hardens you or it, it weakens you to the point where you just don't want to continue right i mean that's that's what's so dangerous about bullying But unfortunately, I think even whatever you want to try and and to put in more understanding in kids, I think kids are going to be kids, you know, between themselves, maybe in front of adults, they're not going to bully each other anymore. But then as soon as the the adult is out, you know, I think I'm quite sure that kids, even to this day, they they just bully each other, you know, and it it kind of sucks, but it is what it is. But question question to you is, I mean, did you feel like it it gave you an advantage
1: or you felt like it, it was a bad thing in the end to move around so much? That's a great question. I don't know if I would wish it on my own kids, but uh, I think it did make me stronger. It made me more resilient. And um, for the last eight years, I'm traveling quite a lot. I've moved a couple times, uh, you know, from US to to Eastern Europe. And uh, for, for me, it's totally normal to to travel around and like go to new places. In fact, I really like the culture shock and how strange it is to go to a new place. Uh, and, and I kind of just thought that was normal, but, uh, you know, having friends that, you know, and, and family that like to be in one place and like the comfort and, you know, security of not changing their surroundings, I, perhaps that is kind of a unique thing that comes from that, some resiliency, some adaptability. So yeah, I'm grateful for it. I think in a way it hardens you, but it also forces you to be flexible and be able to make friends, you know, wherever you go. And, and I think that uh, also that makes you really value friendship. I lived in Poland for four years and uh, that was a really tough time because Polish people are generally very closed and, and cold. And uh, I, you know, I, I was speaking at some, uh, some events. I was uh, going to some networking stuff. I was doing business with some, some companies there. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be like in the States, you know, like super easy to make friends. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, the coolest guy in the world, but like, I, I think I'm fairly normal. Like I never had a problem making friends. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And like, you know, Poland and like some other like post-Soviet countries, it's like not so easy.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not unusual for you to stick with your friends that you have from kindergarten for your whole life. I always say that while it is harder to make friends in the Baltic States and in Eastern Europe, I tend to believe that the friends that you make they last longer than other places. Uh, you go to U.S., everybody's asking how are you doing, you know. But actually, you could—I I always joke around that I would go into, let's say, to a five-star hotel in the U.S., and the, and the guy at the door is, that, "Oh, how's it going?" And you could say, "Hey, man, I'm going to go kill myself." He's like, "Oh, yeah, great. Have a great day," you know, because they really care. You know, Americans are always very keen on. On growing, on on having new new business or whatever, so it, I think it's easier to make new business in the US. I think it's that's one of the reasons probably why m- most of the startups c- are are made in the US. I think it's also easier to network in the US than in Europe. Sure. Americans are very open towards new things and and they they'll listen to you before they say no, yes or no. Right. Us Europeans were more pretentious in in many ways, so it I think it's it's definitely harder to make new friends and new acquaintances in Europe, whereas I feel that. The, the acquaintances and, and friends that you make in Europe, they might be a little bit longer lasting. Or let's say from the percentages of people that, let's say you convert to call it from a, from a marketing standpoint, you know, they're they're going to have a lot longer lifetime value. Right. But at the same time, I mean, you know, especially in my early twenties, I used to go to the U S all the time. And I still, to this day, I speak daily with a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. But if you compare it to the percentage of people that I met, I mean, to the amount of people I met back then, the percentage is very small compared to the, the the percentage of people that I met in Europe, and that are still my friends to this day. But it also could just simply be from a time zone standpoint as well, you know. Right. Uh, but I I remember you know starting to playing football with a football team in, in 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 Estonia, and and for whoever's American, it's a soccer team. And I remember the first six months, you know, I would go there, I would play. I would get changed. I would go home. There was no conversation whatsoever. But then the winter came and then there was like some sauna evening with the team where everybody got completely wasted and it just switched. You know, it was like suddenly I was part of the team. You know, before that, I wasn't even part of the team or I was at least physically, but not mentally. Right. Right. And to this day, I have very good friends there. You know, whenever I need something, I know that in that team, there's always someone that does something that I need, you know, might be a lawyer, might be a construction guy, might be some some other help. The guy, there's always someone there. But it was not easy, you know. And I, I think I have done very few friends in Estonia ever since that as well, because it's it's exactly what you said. It's it's very hard to, to
1: make, make new acquaintances in, in, in Eastern European countries. I mean, how has it been in Ukraine for you? One of my best friends is Ukrainian. And um, I'm very uh, grateful for that friendship. I have a few friends... I have a few uh, fr- well actually but a lot of them are uh, not Ukrainian they're uh, you know uh, expats living there Yeah that happens right
0: it, It's funny like back in the day we call expats immigrants but right. now expat sounds better right But uh, it, it's funny that a lot of the times expats try to tend to stay within each other uh, in their same group but then what's the point of moving somewhere else Right We are not going to you know you're not going there just to just to to get a cheaper workforce or to or to pay lower taxes or whatever I mean you, you might you know you, you want to meet new people
1: right you, you want to expose yourself to that culture right like uh, that's it, how you it, learn I think. It, it, it's kind of like going to all these exotic places around the world but you just stay in the hotel room all the time yeah and uh, in in Poland I was really trying hard to um you know to, to make polish friends and meet Polish people uh it was uh uh, largely unsuccessful. I, I actually, my, my best friends out of uh, Poland were uh, Ukrainians, mm. <laughs> strangely. And, and I think uh, in that case, you know, uh like i have a i have a few friends maybe three friends that are ukrainians they had moved to poland to like try to build a new life and i had just moved from u.s to poland to you know try to build a business and uh, so we were kind of in a similar place uh, you know in life and like with goals like we, we didn't know anybody there we just jumped in to a new country and figuring things out and i think uh, uh a couple of these friends i met in a uh, polish class so we had kind of a similar struggle like you know similar experience similar goals uh, yeah 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 and uh Uh, So that kind of brought us together, yeah. But uh, in Ukraine, you know, another thing that uh, makes it harder to meet people uh, in, like, post-Soviet countries is uh, there's a security risk, right? Like, if you have a business and, like, you talk about it too much and, like, yeah, oh, yeah, like, in U.S., like, it's very common, like, you go to a conference and it's like, yeah, this past year we did $12 million in revenue and uh, we're going to raise, you know, at this valuation and, uh, you know, uh, it's very common to talk about money. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be too much too worried about that in Poland or in Baltic countries. But I guess, you know, whenever you go
0: outside of the European Union or probably, I mean, you know, it's funny because it used to be the same way, the same mentality in, in Baltic countries. I remember talking to a friend of mine a couple of years back about buying a car and he was like, oh, I mean, I, I don't want to drive anything else besides the BMW here because it, it could be too dangerous, you know, and, and now it's kind of switched. Whereas he he's just he just purchased a, a GT3, as, you know. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, what happened to your fears? You know, something, somehow you realize that you're now, you know, the mafia is not going to come knocking on your door, at least not in Lithuania, you know, maybe in, in Ukraine. I mean, I never lived in Ukraine, so
1: I wouldn't know. You know, I I think that uh, these fears kind of subside, at least they kind of did for me, because uh, actually, when I first went to Ukraine, I was, I, I deleted all my posts on Instagram. Uh, I deleted like a lot of photos, uh, you know, stuff you can find about me. And, I, you know, I was like, ah, you know, maybe somebody thinks I'm Doing having too nice of a life and and maybe that can affect me later. but Kiev, I think is very safe, but uh, yeah, you can you can kill someone for five hundred bucks or thousand bucks if you really want to, you know, still, it's like that kind of country. but uh, but in Kiev, I feel very safe.
0: Yeah, I have to say when I was in Odessa as well, when you go to Kiev, okay, you see a bunch of post-Soviet suburbs on from the airport on the way to the center. Fair enough. It still looks somewhat reasonable, but Odessa is like sometimes it's just some shacks on the way to the city center, right? And also the taxi driver wasn't talking about the nice stuff. You know, at the time, the uh, the, rush, the war with Russia was still very hot. And he was saying, hey, you got to be careful. People here just come back from the front. Their, their heads all fucked up and, and they have guns. So honestly, I didn't encounter any of that, but the taxi driver wouldn't stop talking about it. So imagine landing there. I don't know. I think I landed very early in the morning. And what you're hearing is just all this crazy stuff. And then you start thinking, okay, what the hell did I get myself into? Isn't this supposed to be a vacation place, right? <laughs> right, right. And uh, no, none of that I encountered. Uh, it was nice. But still, I did realize that there is definitely a massive difference in uh, where they are economically, or even from, let's say, a, a, a compliance standpoint to Western Europe. And I think it's somewhat unreasonable to expect that they would just join the European Union. I think it would actually be a big disadvantage for the European Union to to have Ukraine, at least right now. It's going to be like a second East Germany situation, right. you know, where you have the West and then you have that that state that's going to have to be get subventions for the next 30 years. And, you know, is there actually something going to happen there? I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, the the sense that I get is that uh, you know Ukrainians want to be in EU because they think that uh, their their incomes and quality of life will rise. Uh, I think that the the stronger force behind the West wanting Ukraine to join EU is like basically to to get Ukraine into NATO. But uh, I suppose that's above my pay grade. Yeah, I mean I'm not a politician either, but I think in at the, at
0: the end of the day just stay out of the euro, you know, because I think a lot of um a lot of the complaints that you hear talking with Estonians, they're just saying, "Oh, everything used to be so much cheaper." Okay, it used to be so much cheaper also with euros. But I remember the same thing even when Portugal joined the euro. Uh, it was like um, it was you know suddenly everything was just more expensive.
1: I've heard similar things from many people in uh, in Europe, and I have a friend from San Marino, and he said, uh, "Yeah, before um, before the euro was introduced uh, in you know in San Marino in Italy." Everybody was, uh, you know, like like you, you imagine the the traditional Italian life. Like you go to the you go to the bakery to get your bread in the morning. You go to the the, the fish guy for your fish and, and and the butcher for your meat. And uh, you know you had that kind of life. And then Italy adopts the euro as their currency, and then all the supermarkets came immediately after that. Like all you know all the, the Carrefour and like all the big supermarkets. And all these uh, small businesses just got uh, just went out of business. Did you see some, something similar in Portugal? Well, what, what you see in Portugal is that a lot of people go on vacation in Portugal. The average
0: Portuguese doesn't have money to get out of the house, get get out of the, the their, their country, right? Or at least not to fly somewhere, like, let's say, where we are right now, Dubai, right? right? So anyway, you would earn in Portuguese money, you would spend in Portuguese money. Most of the food in Portugal, uh, not most, but the big percentage of it is actually homegrown. Electricity in Portugal, you know, I think it's quite self-sustainable as well, even though they get you know, of course, they're connected to the to the whole Balt- to the whole Iberian grid. So, if you weren't traveling abroad, then you would never really notice how weak the Portuguese escudo at the time was, right? So, I guess for the average person, suddenly they just get forced a strong currency on them, and uh, they don't have the purchasing power. Though, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I, I I suppose even if you go to the U.S. and you compare it to prices from 2000, now you'll be shocked at how much things cost now, right? right? It might be one of those things, you know. When you talk to an old person in post-Soviet countries, they say, "Oh, back in the day, everything used to be better." Uh, might just be one of those situations. It would be really interesting to look at statistics, you know, on how. I'm quite sure you'll see that in, in for example, Lithuania, which just re- Lithuania and Latvia, which just recently joined the euro, mm-hmm. would be very interesting to see how their purchasing power has dropped for the average consumer, right. uh, or 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 increased. I don't know. It would be very interesting to see. But in Portugal, I can tell you, I mean, uh, I can tell you my older people still very much miss the the old money, you know, because things were just cheaper from their perspective.
1: Right. So you lived in Switzerland for a long time. Yes. You went to high school there. Did you go to university there? I mean, I wouldn't call it university. In, in the German countries, you have something called an apprenticeship.
0: I don't know if you have this in the US. Whereas uh, in my case, after... I tried to go to... Basically, in Switzerland, school is is tiered. You have three different tiers in in high school, whereas there's a middle tier, which is where I was in, and then I tried to go on the top tier, which then brings you to university, which uh, after half a year, I realized, you know, I I wasn't going to make it there. And uh, because I had to come back to the middle tier, I had not bothered trying to find an apprenticeship after high school ends. So I had a year of just doing nothing, really, um, which is where I started my first, like, blogs and online websites and stuff like that. So it goes to show that sometimes doing nothing, I mean, I, I wasn't doing nothing right that year. I just wasn't in school and I wasn't doing an apprenticeship and I kind of laid the foundation to, to future things there. But then you do the apprenticeship, which is initially it was three days of uh, work a week and two days of school where you still have one day where you have the usual stuff. Like let's call it German, English, history, math, Physics, biology, and then the other day is just related to whatever you're learning at work. So in my case, it was I was learning um, software development. So basically, you go to work for three days a week where you can actually work. You know, they they start they tell like, hey, here's this design of this website, you have to make it happen. And then the one day in school, you they're supposed to kind of teach you more stuff about software development. But let's be honest, I mean you learn 99% of the things that you'll actually use at work. And um, so that was four years. And then after that, um, I mean, I spent some more years in Switzerland, but honestly, I was spending so much time in the US by then already because I kind of started making connections and, uh, and contacts in the online advertising world while I was still in this apprenticeship. And I found that the company while I was still in this apprenticeship that I had, which didn't go very well with my boss at the time because he found out in the local... Gazette or whatever, because it gets announced. When you found a company in Switzerland, it's it's kind of like printed in the local paper. There's like a list of new companies. And my old boss, since he was a local politician, he lo- he loved reading the local paper. And then he just sees the name of his employee there who just found uh, a company. He's like, "What? What is this?" I said, "Yeah, I've been on the side. I've been working on some stuff, and it's doing quite well. So uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna stay here after my apprenticeship. I'm gonna go and just uh, do my own thing." And uh, as an employer now, I understand his frustration. You know, you kind of, you have an employee who has been working with you for four years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you know, it takes a long time to train someone. Right. At the time, I thought, oh, okay, what, well, look at this, you know, this guy. He just doesn't want me to succeed or whatever. But now I, I look at it as, it as an employer myself and think, oh, he just probably was really, you know, not very happy that he had to go and, uh, and find another employee. So yeah, after, after school, I had my company. And I moved out of my parents' home.
1: And, and that's where the journey started. How did you first get into the, the blogs, the online advertising?
0: Oh, man, that's a funny story, I think.
1: Because
0: yeah. I don't know if you remember this. There was this, this website. It was called uh, the Million Dollar Pixel website. Or the Million Pixel, One Million yeah. Pixel website. They, they sold like every pixel for a dollar or something like yeah. that. Yeah, so uh, I love cars since I was a kid. And I thought it was a great idea to make a website where you would sell the advertising space on a car that you're going to get that you're going to go buy with that advertising space you sold and at the time i was really into porsche caymans i don't know why so i made the website was called myporschecayman.com and people could buy uh pixels on that you know on the, on the side of that porsche but honestly it didn't really work out to be honest um in fact i believe there was even like a funny article written about it on a german newspaper because i had written to the to the journalists trying to get to cover it you know and instead of covering it those assholes they just went and made fun of it I was I was trying to Google it the other day, but I couldn't find it anymore. And uh, but anyway, it's funny. One guy actually donated me like two hundred bucks, you know, at the time. And I was like, wow. And uh, I cannot find his email anymore because I want to go back to him. It's like, hey, look, I just uh, I got something better than the Porsche Cayman lately, you know. Thank you very much for your for your help. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, so that bombed. And uh, afterwards, I started the, a, a blog, which was just you know just me for fun writing about video games, technology, stuff that I liked. And, um, I started selling paid posts on that site, you know, just there's like these paid blog posts at the time. I I guess now you have it with influencers, you know, they just get paid to put stuff on their, on their videos or, or Instagram back in the day. It was on blogs. I'm sure it still exists maybe to a smaller extent. So I started thinking to myself, Hmm, so this guy is paying me to put insurance, some insurance website on my blog. Wait, so how does this work? And I realized, okay, there was this thing called affiliate marketing, right? So I started digging deeper into it and I realized, okay, there was things like ring, you could promote ringtones, you could promote insurances, you could promote all of that stuff and you would get a small commission for it. So um, I started using the, the trust, the Google trust that I got from the, from that blog, which I was getting some links back, you know, for some articles. Thankfully, Microsoft at the time was providing me with free Xbox games that I could review, mm-hmm. you know, actually like ahead of the, the release date. So that was pretty cool. Uh, they were providing me also with hardware that i could review so I was getting like some blo- link backs from other technology blogs so the the domain had some some authority to it and then i used that domain to to you know write the little post about insurances and then when tried to rank it you know um back in the day with all the what was it those um delicious links and stuff like yeah. that you know when whenever that st- stuff still worked and um that's how i made my first couple hundred euros online you know and then i realized wait this could be actually something that really works out well, and I actually wanted to quit my apprenticeship already earlier. But my parents, they said, "No way! Like you, you're we're not gonna have a son who doesn't even have a degree." You know, you have to finish it. And I just did it on part time. I would get home six p.m. Um, I would go to football to play with my friends. Get home at eight. After that, have quick dinner, and then I would work until three a.m., four a.m. And then the next day at seven, eight a.m., I would have to go get up to go either to school or to work. So that's how I kind of. Uh, managed to get both things done at the time.
1: I think the first um, couple hundred bucks or the first thousand bucks is so critical because until you get that, you have no idea if there's anything there.
0: My parents thought for a long time it was just play money until they they actually saw like a check being sent. I was just getting, I think it was even a ClickBank check or whatever, you yeah. know? Such a guru thing, right? The click, getting your first ClickBank check. Yeah. And uh, and I had to ask my dad to to check it for me because I was under I was underage at the time. Uh, it was just a, I think it was like sixty seven dollars or whatever. It was a joke, you know. But it was just. like, but it was real. Hey, it's I, real money, you know.
1: And and that sixty seven dollars, like uh, you know, if, if you can make sixty seven, you can make six hundred seventy, and you can make 6700 and uh, six point seven million.
0: Yeah, especially if you're you know if you're still doing it part time. Although of course there's a there's a law of diminishing returns, right? You can work more hours into it, doesn't mean you're going to be necessarily much more efficient. But yeah, it was a. I mean, I look back at that, and and I, I wish I would have gone even harder. You know, I wish I would have understood that uh, while my neighbors think I'm selling drugs, that actually was a big advantage because now everybody is making money online with e-commerce or, or or whatever, and it's kind of an. You tell someone you you have an online business. Oh, okay, cool. Back then it was like, really, you know. Really? Come on. This is like, tell me really what you're doing, you know? And um, it's a big opportunity because it just hadn't been recognized by big brands at the time or, or it did, but they were doing it all wrong. They were just paying, oh, I'll pay you a thousand bucks to put my link on your website, you know, like that type of stuff.
1: So you make your first money and how does that lead to, you know, the company that you founded and growth from there?
0: The beauty of um, being just an affiliate market is you don't have to deal with stock, you don't have to deal with uh, with any of the other issues. It's it's very scalable in that, in to that point that as, as long as you're profitable while you're scaling, doesn't really matter, right? How many people you have as long as the server holds up. Which was also a different story back then. There was no such thing as just uh, mm-hmm. auto scaling and cloud and, and and that type of thing. So you know, we just, I mean, we I I started running on on Google Ads at the time. And uh, I had some good money together. And uh, funny enough, as soon as I move out of my parents' home, suddenly all my Google Ads accounts get banned. <laughs> and uh, I had a certain amount of saving, but in Switzerland, a certain amount of saving doesn't last you forever. You know, uh, you have it's quite expensive to rent, and I guess that kind of humbled me as well. At two, three months, trying to figure out different traffic sources it was the first time ever because i had only run Google Ads until then. I was just running display. I was just running search. Things were going okay. Uh, I was only running US, and then I realized, wait. Why is everybody only running US? So I started looking for stuff to push internationally, and that worked. That worked quite well for me as well. Back then. well
1: and what products or offers were you were you pushing then? Um, mostly supplements at the
0: time. Supplements were very big. Courses as well. So that that was pretty much it. Mostly supplements. So because the ringtones had already been kind of you know no one really wanted a ringtone anymore. I think the first androids were already out. That didn't need it anymore. You don't need ringtones if you can just download an MP3 and then use it as your,
1: what's it called? Uh, your ringtone, yeah. Right. So you're you're selling supplements. You're running uh, Google ads. You you find some other traffic sources. Like, was there a catalytic moment where things really started to scale, really started to grow fast?
0: Yeah, I think when I found some people that were selling supplements internationally. And then I could suddenly, I realized, wow, I, I speak Portuguese. It's a big advantage. No one's ever tried to run stuff and like like sell these these things in Brazil yet. No one's really tried to do it in Chile yet. And at the time, especially Brazil was going through a huge boom. They were just growing, growing, growing. Their currency was still very strong at the time. And uh, I started pushing it in Brazil. And then you know suddenly you're having no competition at all. And also much, you know, you have yeah you have layer lower affiliate percentage payouts or whatever but you also have much lower competition. And I mean, I mean, I was getting sub one cent clicks on, on Google Ads at the time. I was bidding one cent and it would still generate clicks. That's really my first big win, I would say, is when suddenly uh, I just started implementing whatever worked in the US, but abroad. And then I also started buying Medium directly. Instead of just going to Google Ads, I would, I would literally, basically, I would, back now, I wish I would have hired someone. But back then I would just call up uh, big publishers. I would go on Alexa top 50 or top hundreds. And I would be like, okay, this is a news page, page. This is a news page. This is a news page. And you, I would call them up and be like, hey, how much can I buy traffic from you guys for? And then um, in Chile, at some point, I, I hit it really big because they, they were just giving away their traffic, basically. Like One of the biggest news sites in Chile. And no one had ever run this these type of products in Chile before. So Here we are, you know, very high ROI, but it only lasted for two months until someone else jumped in and figured it out. And that's kind of the the sad side of affiliate marketing is that you can innovate as much as you want. Two three months later, someone's just going to jump in and do exactly the same thing as you, because there's just the law that if something is profitable, someone's going to figure it out and someone just can't keep their mouth shut and they will just start and, you know, it just replicates it. And then you have suddenly two people sharing the same piece of pie. And it just uh, goes
1: down from there, usually. Yeah, You saw some new competition come in after a couple of months doing that in Brazil. You know, what was your next step to like continue growing? Was it to go to different countries or to double down on Brazil?
0: No, no. We went to different countries, went to different countries. Basically, I just started hiring an army of translators and then starting putting up uh, ads. Okay. Beautiful thing about big platforms is they have generally traffic everywhere. So you can just click, you know, you duplicate the campaign, you translate it, you put a different country in there, will work. Great. Uh, at least that's how it worked back in the day. And uh, and that was pretty much it, to be honest with you. I did that for a couple of years. And actually, when I look back now, it's probably was one of the the most relaxed times in my life. Because as an affiliate, you just send the sale. That's all you have to worry about. Everything else is handled by the merchant, the backend. Um, and you get paid. Hopefully you get paid. It happened a couple of times you don't get paid because they just disappear. But... It's all part of the business. you just have to kind of learn how to, uh, to play your risks well and who to, who, who to work with is also a thing that you need to learn um, in the long run. But from then on, you know at some point, I realized like, wait, why am I running all these products? I, I should be also getting the back end of it. And uh, that, that started out as a little fun side thing. you know we We're selling some flashlights at the time. And then it uh, snowballed into uh, into actually like a a pretty decent sized operation. We were remote before it was cool to be remote.
1: I I always like to say, and we started just selling everything, man. I mean, hundreds of different products. Is that when you started to work directly with China to source products and? Yeah. And, and you're warehousing them yourself. You're doing all the logistics yourself. It's not dropshipping. It's too early for dropshipping, yeah?
0: No, we were still dropshipping in the early days. And then eventually we we find an agent that we really like working with. And then we start working on on holding our own stock as well. And um, I mean, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword, whereas the Chinese, they can provide you a lot of volume, but they can also provide you a lot of problems with the volume, let's say this way. And uh, it, was, it was definitely a big experience. I mean, we we sold a lot of things from toothbrushes to, I don't even else, like uh, kitchen products. It, it was really the whole across the whole board. And then I decided that, you know, instead of being an affiliate, we'll just launch our own affiliate network. And then we would just, you know, affiliates, sometimes they would come to us and they would want an exclusive product that we wouldn't give to other people. I mean, as much as you can be an exclusive product when it's a Chinese product, right. basically... Same thing would happen as with the campaign. After two, three months, the competitors would find out about it and they would launch the same product. But at least for those two, three months, the affiliate had a very big incentive to scale heavy until someone else caught on to it. So we worked with some people exclusively. They worked only with us for a long time. You know, I got lucky because they were people we liked to work with and and we scaled from
1: then on. It was a lot of fun back then. So you actually started your own affiliate network also.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had the whole thing. We had the affiliates. We had the affiliate network. And then we had also the back end.
1: What was the um like like what's an example of some like really difficult challenge you had working with Chinese suppliers? And then how did you deal with that?
0: There's so many. I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out which which ones I should tell you about. Um, I mean, Brazil is a perfect example. This was not necessarily on, on the Chinese issue, there was a Brazilian issue, whereas a couple of years ago, Brazilian Post realizes they're, ma- they're making a loss on every international pa- parcel that they're delivering inside of Brazil because international. Postal union basically works as in, you know, the sender is paying for the the, the whole way towards the country. And I, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, that then they get a fixed fee for the local post gets a fixed fee from the other posts for delivery of the parcel inside of their own country. Brazilian post decided it was not enough. So they suddenly just stop all parcels and tell everybody that, okay, if you want your parcel, you have to pay, I think it was 15 reais, which is at the time was like $5 or whatever to get your parcel delivered. And then, you know, if you're sending hundreds or thousands of products into Brazil every day, you have to come up with a process where you hope that you can kind of force most people at least to, to go on their own. You know, it's not like you could charge a customer and you pay the post. No, your customer had to go himself to the website, to the tracking site on the Brazilian post and pay the, the, the fee himself or otherwise the product gets sent back to China. So that was a big, big challenge. And I think also it it, uh, it hurt a lot of international merchants that that were shipping into Brazil, which is I think most of them just who are big enough, they just set up their own warehousing in Brazil. Uh, How did you end up fixing that? We didn't really. I mean, we couldn't fix it. We set up WhatsApp notifications. We set up SMS notifications. We would just pester the customer like, hey, your parcel's still waiting at the border. Can you please pay the the, the fee? And initially it was really hard, but with time... You know, they're already used to this because they ordered other parcels from other uh, uh, from other websites abroad. So they already know kind of, okay, I might be forced to end up paying this. So then it was easier. So then the, the percentage was quite high. But, the, you know, it kind of made Brazil a little bit unprofitable because it, it just, you know, you just get suddenly, let's say, 5 to 10% of your parcels just get shipped back. And um, many times they don't even get shipped back, depending on the shipping provider. They just destroy them locally. So that was a big challenge. Working with Brazil, especially. And with the Chinese, it's, it's um, as I said, they can provide you very big volume, but sometimes to provide you that very big volume in a very short amount of time, they cut on the quality. And then you have small things that can, could just be avoided, you know? Like, at some point, you realize, like, wait, the the manuals they send are, they suck. So every time we would start a new product, uh, you know, we would have a team that would, like, hey, can you please send us the manual? And then we would just redo the manual just to increase the, the, the quality so to say.
1: Wow. Very interesting. I never heard that one before.
0: Yeah. I mean, we were surprised by how many people were actually reading those manuals, you know, and then they, they would find some Chinglish, we call it Chinglish, you know, and then, uh, they would, uh, they would get pretty unhappy, you know?
1: Around when was that, that you were, uh, like you, you're really scaling your drop shipping and, and the, uh, ecom? e you're, you're pushing hundreds of products, thousands of products.
0: It started off in 2016. And I, I mean, we finished it in 2020 then just, uh, the profit margins to stop start dropping substantially. Uh, everyone and their mother had had an affiliate network that was kind of selling this type of stuff. You just kind of think that it's. I like to be in businesses that are growing, or where you feel that you know other people are still excited to work with you, and there's not just this constant complaining going on of like, oh, everything used to be better, you know, like an like an old Soviet um, citizen, you know, Every, back in the day in the Soviet Union, everything used to be better, you know. You don't want to be in that situation, and I think that. Also wanted to kind of do a next
1: step as well. What were the margins in 2016 versus like 2019, 2020? Oh, I think they were um, incredibly...
0: I mean, also,
1: I don't think it was just
0: the margins from our side. It's also the cost of ads was very low. Uh, There's a website which basically has an index for the online advertising cost. And I, I mean, I think last week, Black Friday... Is is a hundred in the index. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at 2016 Q4, which is usually when ads are most expensive, it was 26. So it was one quarter of the cost in in 2016 to get the same product into the face of someone else. I see. And suddenly advertising costs, which were many times the most, the biggest expense, they just blew up. And not only did they blow up, they also became less effective because of iOS 14 and all those cookie changes suddenly you have your best paying customers which you know whoever buys an iphone generally tends to be also better consumer for a brand than than an android user because when you have an android you you can have a thousand two hundred dollar android you can also have a hundred dollar chinese android right you never really know suddenly you you have this big chunk of of a very expensive and and good customer like the the iphone ios consumers who you can't really track anymore, or Facebook can't track anymore. But it's not like Facebook is going to go, okay, guys, we're going to drop our, you know, efficiency of the ads drop fifty percent. we are going to drop our CPM fifty percent. No, Facebook is going to say, you know, you guys got to figure out whatever you want. I'm sure they're working hard behind the door, behind closed doors, to to c- kind of come up with that loss of data. But they definitely didn't drop the CPM prices, and CPAs have gone through the roof, from what I've heard from from many of those brands.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine has told me uh, that. 90% of, you know, e-com or, you know, companies he knows dependent on Facebook traffic, they're just gone now, or they've pivoted into native or, you know, some other traffic sources.
0: Yeah. Which uh, of course, you know, then it just squeezes the the margins for for whoever is now right now native. So then you, you got to ask yourself, you know, okay, what's, what's next. And that's kind of the thing, you know, I feel that a lot of people in this industry, they just strike it big ones and then they lessen their rest on their laurels. And then they'll be like. They'll wake up in two, three years, and they'll be like, oh, what happened to, to this? You know, it's it's an ever-evolving ecosystem. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we were just talking about started with ring, ringtones or started with my own blog, then ringtones, then insurance lead gen, then dating, and then supplements, and then e-com, you know, so I, I like reinventing myself. It's kind of weird. I'm, I'm, It's like being a kid who's playing Lego, and you build this really cool castle, and you're like, okay, screw it. I'm going to just, you know, you just want to rebuild it even better. And maybe it's, uh, it's an absurd and, and stupid way of think about it. But yeah, it would definitely be, I think that's kind of the challenge, right? At some ex- to some extent.
1: Do you think that if, if you could not reinvent yourself in this way every few years or regularly, that you would lose a lot of happiness you have in your life? I
0: think that my happiness these days is not really built on business anymore, to be honest. I think it's built more on the fact that, you know, we have a beautiful little boy, the friendship I, I have with with the few, but very good people. Honestly, I'd like to say it's not true, but back in the day, I think for sure, happiness was more based on on business success, but because also more that was maybe more of a necessity, right? I've gotten to the point now where I could very comfortably live just for my investments. I don't have to work anymore, but somehow I still, you know, I tried not working for a couple of months and then I realized, oh my God, it's going crazy uh, last year. I was going crazy, and, and I realized that not working doesn't make me happy either, but uh, what makes me for sure happy is to to see some you know like uh, like a crazy professor that figures out that his plan worked out somehow you know and uh, I think that 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 is really what what makes me happy you know
1: so in 2020 you kind of uh, wound down the affiliate business, the affiliate network business yeah, and uh, you know what what are you working on now and what's uh, what's in store for the future for you?
0: I mean, I'm working on different things right now. Some of it is is still affiliate related, but it's definitely not uh, it, It's not in the, in the same vertical as it used to be. And I, I don't want to be dealing with hundreds of different affiliates anymore. I'd rather just work exclusively with a bunch of guys and maybe also on RevShare because I feel that the big guys these days, they won't even work with you anymore unless you do give them some kind of back end as well. Because, you know, they're they're coping with ad costs that are, as I said, four times as high as they were four years ago. So they can't even be profitable, even in the long run, if you
1: don't do that. I'm not as lucky as you where where most of our traffic is is SEO, you know? Hey, man, the grass is always greener. You know, I I was saying for years, like, man, if we could just buy traffic, uh, run paid ads, then it'd be so much easier because we get, uh, you know, you you launch some campaigns today, you know, in the morning and in the afternoon, you see what kind of performance you have. Whereas, uh, you know, SEO, like, we had this whole process where like, we want to you know, diversify our portfolio of sites. We want to choose a new niche to go into. From launching the site, writing all the content, and like, building the links to like, make that site competitive, like, we were often... Like, in order to go into a market that's big enough to be interesting, like, we were looking at you know, at least $300,000 and a year and a half to build all that out. And so that's the price to buy the ticket to go to the game. Like it doesn't mean anything, right? Like you 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 do this for a year and a half, maybe 2 years and like maybe your site has no traffic. And uh, and that definitely happens. Um I've seen uh, some sites that are run by very large well capitalized companies that spent millions of dollars on content and links. Two, three, four years later, it's like no traffic. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, Google is just a black box. Uh, I mean, in terms of like paid traffic as well, Facebook and Google, they're also black boxes. But uh, the, the feedback is so much faster, right? So I was always jealous of uh, people doing, running ads, you know, wow, like you can see if you're profitable, you know, f- from the first day. Yeah, it's like at in- least, instant
0: gratification or not. Right.
1: But of course, like um, like if you can do SEO and you are successful, you have this huge moat, right? Because like if somebody else wants to go into that industry, like they also have to put in that time and money to like even try to compete. So so often, like once you get a site number one in SEO, you just stay there for a while as long as you don't you know fuck something up.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what I was talking about with paid traffic. It's the exact opposite. Someone can just go ahead copy your stuff one to one. It's a chance that he's you know. Probably he's not going to do as well as you because you have more data at that point. Mm-hmm. But he's still going to do well enough to to hurt you. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I feel that a lot of the guys they have gone into, everybody's saying that they're making their own brand now. But I, I think to myself, okay, but well, what does really differentiate you, you know? Just because you take your affiliate page and put some pastel colors on it, you know, and, and put some uh, high quality images on it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that you're going to become... I don't know, the next dollar shave club, you know, it's tough. And I feel that, you know, if, if, if you would have done, if anybody would have done this four or five years ago and paid traffic was still very cheap, it would have been quite an easy thing to do. But now I, I really just ask myself, you know, what's next? And, and I think with paid traffic, that's kind of where you have to be all the time. What's next? And I think that's also one of the reasons why most of the guys in this business are still very young. You go to a conference, you see mostly young guys. Because when you're young, you're hungry, right? right? If you start losing your hunger or you have your family, I, I realize it myself now. You know, I used to be working every single day of the week. Mm-hmm. Now I actually have weekends. Yeah. You know? I mean, I would feel guilty as a parent if I would look back five, ten years from now and I would have not experienced this beautiful age of two and a half year olds to, I don't know, four year olds. You know, everybody says how it's the most beautiful age. And... Um, it's great though. I look forward to the weekend now, which kind of sucks because I used to always laugh at people like that, like oh, haha, you know, like look at you, you don't like you don't like the work you do. That's why you you like to to take two days off, you know. Uh-huh. But now I've I've become more calm in that in that extent as well.
1: I think a lot of young entrepreneurs, and and I think maybe even it's a little bit of American culture also. Like we we take pride in um in being busy and struggling. Like, it's, you know, like, you know, someone asks you, how you doing? And, and if, uh, if you respond, like, it's very common to hear the response, oh man, I'm so busy. Like, this is happening. This is happening. And it's like, you know, something that you, it's, it's a badge of honor that people wear. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, certainly like, uh, I'm also trying to like, well, just enjoy, you know, also like, uh, you know, of course teach their own, but uh, you know, money. Um, like I, I never did like a marketing business because I was like so passionate about marketing. Like. Like. It was always in order to um, have freedom and optionality later.
0: Yeah, I also thought always that I'm going to work like crazy in my 20s so that I can relax afterwards. And uh, I wouldn't consider myself relaxing now, but definitely I take things a little bit slower and things take a little bit longer, more time to materialize than they did back in the day. And uh, is it a disadvantage or not? It can go both ways, I think, you know, but certainly it's changed mindset. That's for sure.
1: You mentioned earlier that uh, you know you have some invest investments. You've gotten investing. You know when did you start with investing? You know what did you end up investing in, and 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 how did you think through you know making those decisions? I got advice from a good friend of mine who uh, who owns
0: a couple buildings in in the Baltics as well. So when I started talking to him about it, it kind of started making sense. And honestly, I never really thought about investments while. Wow. I was not a parent yet, Mm -hmm. but also because my daily business was doing so well that I didn't really need to. I felt like that, ah, whatever time I put into this is not going to be worth the time that I lose from my main business. But then I think to myself, wow, I mean, you know, I could have invested much earlier. I think that's kind of the, always a takeaway, but then you're always thinking, oh, it's too overpriced. It's going to crash soon. And then I realize that, wait, you actually lose more money by just sitting out in the long run. Right. But yeah, I mean, I had been invested in just the usual stuff, some, some ETFs, you know, uh, back in the day. But then two years ago, I started looking into buildings to buy as well, triple nets, mm-hmm. whereas you just pay land tax and you pay any major reconstruction of the building, but you don't have to deal with the maintenance. You don't have to deal with with anything really. So I bought a bunch of these buildings, and it's good. I mean, you know, you know yourself in in, in Eastern European countries, the yields are a little bit bigger than Western European countries, where sometimes the yields are in the Single digits. I mean, single digits, low single digits. Right, right. Of course, there's a higher risk as well in Eastern Europe, and so that's really cool, you know, because it, it. I think the income from that alone covers the the expenses more than more than the expenses that that we have, and and then of course you know just the average um, some companies that I really believe in, and then just just uh, mostly ETFs as well. I mean, it, it's kind of funny because you know banks always try to sell you their Their special funds or whatever and then you look at the fees and you're thinking wow i mean do you really outperform the markets in the long run and the answer is most of the time no right so i mean i met one of those guys a couple weeks back here and i asked him which hotel you're staying at and then he said four seasons and i said okay yeah you know i'm not going to give you my money and 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 why what and why did you even tell me that you know like why would i even if i go to a new city yeah i'll stay in nice hotels and stuff but I mean, I wouldn't really stay at the Four Seasons unless it's my honeymoon or something. You know, I'm not that type of guy. I actually right. probably enjoy just a modern, good-looking hotel more than, I'm not saying the Four Seasons is not good enough, but it has like this old people type of feeling to me or, or like a wealthy people type of feeling to me, right? So I, 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 th- I thought, okay, well, this kind of explains why your fees double what other people. And then it's also not only that, it's also the, you know, I mean, what? Well, I would ask, okay, but how has your performance been? You know, in the oh, it's been great. And maybe because I have been in online advertising for so long, I like to look at data, you know? Like, right. okay, show me the data. And I looked right. at the data and it wasn't... Yeah, you had a couple of years where you were better than the market, but then you had also a couple of years where you were worse than the market. And at the end of the day, it was pretty much the same. So, you know, if I give uh, Vanguard's, I don't know, what is it? 0.1% a year for a, an S&P 500 fund, or I give this guy 2% a year, for pretty much the same thing. I mean, I'd rather stay at the Four Seasons myself, you know?
1: Yeah, I I think it's such a shame that, um, you know, and I I think it's because of central bank, uh, central banks, you know, manipulating the money and printing so much money. And uh, like all these regular people are forced to like invest. Like, why should my mom have to figure out like which stocks to pick? Like, 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 why does she have to risk her life savings as like a teacher and like tutoring her whole life in order to just like, Stay even on the treadmill, right? Like, uh, because you know, you you keep all that money in cash; it's going to lose its value, um, obviously. Uh, And uh, you know, okay, so invest in S and P. Yeah, it's it's much better than nothing, of course. But uh, you know, like, like what a waste of time that everybody has to like try to you know find a financial advisor and and all these things.
0: As they say so beautifully, don't fight the Fed, right? And you could see right now in the last couple days what happens when. When there's a fear of liquidity being drained out of the market every you know as far as i understand all the the stonks they all went down all those uh those um those wall street bets the beam stocks yeah those meme stocks um a lot of the COVID stocks dropped as well despite the fact that we have this new variant coming up but i think people are starting to see through it that it's just i mean come on there's 1800 variants of the cold you know or right. 1500 variants of the cold you're gonna make a new big fuss every time there's a new variant coming out, you know, might as well not have a life at all in right. two, three years. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting. And I, I, for me, it's the same. Why would my dad who's worked all his life, you know, to make some savings and my mom who's worked all his, her life to put up some savings, why would she now 60 something have to start investing? You know, the, the beautiful thing about investing in your thirties or in their twenties or in your forties is that you still have a, hor- a decent horizon. Whereas if you, there's a crash, you might be able to sit it out, and you can still see some upside. what's going to happen with them if they invest today and tomorrow it crashes? At that age, normally, you start taking stuff out of the markets, right? Because you start preparing for your retirement. And I, I also think it's very unfair. And I mean, you know, it's much worse in Europe with negative interest, where you have to pay the bank to hold your money, which is, in my opinion, it's absolutely absurd. And you look at um, the inflation numbers in Estonia, uh, in, in, in the Baltics, I think it was 9.2 in Lithuania, 8.9 in Estonia and I think 9.1 in Latvia or something. So the Baltic states are actually the, the highest inflationary, are having the highest inflationary pressure right now. I don't know why. Cause Germany is at 6%, but the average Eurozone, I think was 4.8%, but it's still way above their 2% target. And they're still saying that it's, that it's temporary.
1: I mean, and of course those numbers are bullshit, right? Like yeah, they, because they you change the you calculation all yeah, the time. Yeah.
0: Add, add, add house prices to it. Add, uh, asset prices to it. Come on. I mean, there's no way, you know? Like uh we we bought an apartment in Estonia last year. I checked the price now. I mean, it's almost 50% up. Wow. Year on year. Wow. You know, and you ask yourself, but why? You know, it's just because people are taking out loans just to pay whatever they can get their hands on because they they're f- afraid that whatever money they have saved up is going to be worthless anyway in a couple of years time. So it all will work until the bubble just pops, right? And um, another thing which I read the other day is that many of the, the, the loans done now in Estonia, they're done almost on the margin of the, the the minimum requirements for the loan. So they're not putting more down than the, you know, the banks are giving out loans just to give out loans. So it it starts to, you know, at some point, I mean, may, I might be wrong, you know, some people have been calling for, for a crash for, for decades, right? And, you know, if you... Say that the wolf is coming, you know, one day the wolf will actually be there, right?
1: You know, there was never really a crash in Weimar, Germany, right? Uh, Yeah. You know, it just went up forever until until infinity. Yeah, it kept going up. And then what, a piece of bread cost you, what, a couple million
0: marks or whatever? Billions,
1: trillions, like,
0: you know. I think that's why Germans are also very afraid of uh, of inflation. And uh, it's hilarious that they have, I think it's just French. Who is at the ECB head.
1: Yeah. So Lagarde.
0: Lagarde, yeah. And then she keeps saying it's transitory. But I think it's just because they have no, they have no buffer. Like what? The increase rates? And then what? How is Italy going to service their debt? How is Greece going to service their debt? How is Portugal going to service their debt? And I'm telling you this as a Portuguese person. They should have two separate Euros, you know, for countries that actually have decent balanced budgets and for countries that don't have it. And it's kind of sad that that you know they just tried to put this massive big economy um, big zone into one currency you know and you see poland increasing their interest rates you see all these other countries around there increasing interest rates the only one that are not increasing interest rates is turkey and look what's happening to their currency I, it's almost a sad thing to talk about because of course i i would say that i'm in the lucky position that my asset prices the, the value of the assets that i own they're increasing but the average person you know, they don't have a building. They don't have a. They only have a house. Okay, their house is increasing in value, but I don't think it's making up for the amount of purchasing power that they're losing
1: from their salary and from their savings. Yeah, their their housing prices may go up, but so does the cost of their education and healthcare and the. Car yeah, and that how liquid
0: is really your house? You have, still have to sell it and find
1: another guy to to sell it to. and pay tax on the you know the capital gains. And yeah, depending on the country, yeah. right. I think this is a nice, uh, s- this gives us a nice segue into Bitcoin. How familiar are you with Bitcoin? I mean, I, I had my first Bitcoin in
0: 2013, back in the day. Like many people, I like, kind of lost access to whatever wallet I had back then. Yeah. So that's probably, you know, an interesting loss to have. Mm-hmm. It was like $110 at the time. I remember that. And I had a bunch of friends who were crazy about it. And they went, really, they they bought a good amount of Bitcoin. And I'm I'm very certain that today... If they held on to it today, you know they're they're quite happy people. On the other hand, I have a friend of mine who uh, who was part of the, one of the the Dogecoin team initially, and uh, he just had he just uh, you know it was all a joke. They they all thought it was funny, so they, he was he got a bunch of Dogecoin to make a bunch of uh, logos and and flyers and whatever, and he sold it all because he he had it for a while, and he, after a year or two, he's like, oh wait, what the fuck? It actually went up in price. Like let me sell this while before it crashes. And he told me the other day that he calculated how much money he would have had now. he was in the billions, man. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. He sold it all. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, my two Bitcoins lost is not, nothing compared to, to your loss then. So it kind of made me feel a bit better about yeah. myself. <laughs> I own some. I'm not crazy about it. I think a lot of people are a little bit irrational about it, where they think that it's going to entirely change the world. I think it's not going to entirely change the world, but it might be not Bitcoin itself, but blockchain might be, has the potential to become one of the technologies they will use every day. Just like we use the internet today, every day, it's going to become part of our daily bread and butter, let's say this way. I think that uh, it's, you know, the, the ability for, for artists to, to monetize their content and their creativity via NFTs is very interesting. It's probably one of the first real life applications where I have to say like, okay, this, this is actually pretty cool and it kind of makes sense. Because a lot of the things is just you take whatever already exists, and then you say, oh, it's now powered by blockchain. But some of these projects, you have to ask yourself, does it really need a block? I mean, do I really need a blockchain for this or not? Nearly all of them are just
1: databases, right? Yeah. Like, they're, they're permission so, databases.
0: For a long time, I remember, I was talking to, to my partner about that, and I was telling her that, man sometimes i should put my money where my mouth is because i remember talking about it in 2017 and telling everybody that i thought that ethereum is going to go up because actually you can use it for for other things than just holding value and uh, i think it was also in like in this like a couple dozen dollars at the time and, and now i'm just like punching myself like oh, how why why did i not put my money where my mouth is but uh yeah i mean i know that um the common acquaintance that we have, he's he's a, he's absurdly into Bitcoin, so it's very funny to to be around him because he's he's very hyped about it. And I like to say that I'm I'm not against it at, by any means, but I think I would say I'm I'm quite you know. Let's see what happens. Let's see how how far the real life application, the, the blockchain
1: applications, takes us. So, like when you say let's see where it goes, you're you're waiting for like the price to go up or for more applications to be built on it. And I'm asking this because, you know, for example, Bitcoin is going up uh, on average about 150% per year for the last decade, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if I told you already, like, I'm, I'm a Bitcoin guy. I'm not into other other cryptos. Um, and the reason is that uh, I think nearly every crypto that's out there is uh, a venture bet at best and a scam at worst. So, you know, it's it's very easy now for companies to raise a lot of money and launch a coin or token and, mm-hmm. and all this. So there's a lot of uh, these, like, startups with, you know, with venture money that are just creating literally just databases, but they call it a blockchain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's not really decentralized. It's not really um, uh, what to say. You know, somebody has a key, you know, uh, admin key to make changes. So, like, you don't need a blockchain for that. You can just run that on Amazon Web Services, yeah. servers, right? So, uh Bitcoin, I think, um, is the most important thing that is happening in the world right now because, and especially over the last two years, because, you know, 40% of the U.S. dollars that exist today were printed in the last year and a half, right? Uh, Central banks are printing so much money, and that is really the reason why uh, housing prices and basically inflation in general has gone up so much. And uh, so what every person in the world needs is a way to protect themselves from this debasement, right? Like if, if we lived in uh, Weimar Germany or Argentina during their hyperinflations, like it really, I mean, it helped a bit, it helped a lot, but like it still didn't save you to buy German stocks or Argentinian bonds or stocks or real estate, right? Like, because um, you know your, your yield essentially goes to zero on anything that you own. And the appreciation in your assets is still not going to beat the inflation rate. So as every central bank is printing money like there's no tomorrow, um, I think we need a non-sovereign or non-government-backed asset that can outpace this inflation. Uh, And I think that uh, Bitcoin is the only one that fits that bill because no country, no individual uh, can control it. There's no admin keys. There's only 21 million that will ever be. And, uh, you know, I I think that uh, this thing is going to demonetize uh, gold and then uh, real estate uh, and then uh, bonds. And uh, I I do see a path to it being worth $100 trillion. It's worth about a trillion dollars today. So uh, this is why the podcast is, uh, you know, about both business and Bitcoin, because I'm, I'm super passionate about this thing. I think that people really need it. Like we were just talking about how our parents should not have to worry about, you know, picking stocks to just, just keep their life savings, right? Uh, and for thousands of years, gold was the vehicle which people used to just save. They didn't have to invest. You know, if you're a, a veteran or a, a doctor, like you don't have to, you know, talk to these hedge fund guys and deal with all that bullshit. You just buy some gold and stick it under, you know, your floorboards and, and you're going to be okay. But uh, gold has some problems. We don't know how many there are. Gold miners keep mining more. And uh, you know the price is manipulated by uh, by banks and governments. So, you know, it's my belief that Bitcoin is the best chance for regular people to escape inflation. And because it's still early in the adoption cycle of Bitcoin, it is a really uh, tremendous opportunity uh, for people that that buy it now or very soon. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, look, I don't disagree with you on many
0: of the, these points. I don't disagree with you at the point that. You know, we can't just keep on in infinitely. I don't believe in modern modern money theory. Uh, let's say this way. I think also that you know, the more you produce of something, the less value it has in itself. The I also don't believe that you know, Bitcoin is a transaction thing. For what for what you're telling me is pretty much you know like digital gold. Yeah, I as think, an asset. Like think as of an, it assets, an asset, as a, not as a, a value, yeah. as a value storage uh, for transaction transactions, it, it wouldn't really make much sense, also from the way that, you know, how much power it takes to process a transaction. And that's why when some of these companies come out, like PayPal, oh, we're going to accept Bitcoin. I'm thinking, uh, really, does it, I mean, I get it, you know, but then I'm thinking to myself, but does it really make sense? You know, and people back in the day, would you go in, and pay in gold? You know, you would go get currency with that gold, and then you pay in the currency because it's just much easier.
1: Yeah. So that's that's a great example. So uh, in that case, like gold was the base layer of the money and the bank notes were the second layer, right? And uh, this is happening. The same thing is happening with Bitcoin also. Are are you familiar with Lightning Network? Yeah. So like I I actually just uh, started using this recently and, uh, you know, for, you know, a tiny fraction of uh, a, a cent, like you can send money basically instantly uh so you know what i see happening and uh and some other people see happening is like like these second layer solutions are going to make bitcoin much faster and, and much more like a daily use uh, currency Yeah, because and, i and think
0: you would need uh that is part of the, the necessity to make it more widely more widely attractive even because i think a lot of the, the people right now their counter argument for bitcoin is oh but i can't really use it for anything yeah, you can't really use gold for anything either. I mean, I own some gold. I never saw it in my life. You know, it doesn't mean that that uh, it has to be physical for it to exist. Or, I mean, I'm sure according to the contract and the certificate, it's somewhere in Hong Kong. It's right? somewhere, <laughs> somewhere, right? Yeah. I think the issue with the, that I see with crypto is uh, how our government's going to deal with it. And um, for example, in China, it's banned, right? Right. As far as I understand, yeah. And you can do that if you're an authoritarian state. You can just go and ban things. Or you can try to ban things. I mean, we've banned drugs and they're still around. Right. Right. But I think while people say, oh, but they can't do that in Europe. Yeah, they can't do that in Europe. But then they'll just tax you. You know? It's like if you don't want to go to jail for not paying your taxes, then you'll have to probably they'll just be like, oh, but all crypto transactions now will be taxed higher than other transactions or whatever. They could do that very easily. So that's that is my, I wouldn't say counter argument. But I'm a very realistic guy in many things. You know, I look at things and I look at them and I think, okay, what what are the chances? What are the odds? Honestly, Bitcoin has impressed me in terms of where it's now and where it was a couple of years back. But let's see where it is once the Fed starts tightening rates. That is also very interesting because, as you said, many people are using it as a hedge against inflation. Once inflation starts going down and the Fed starts tightening their rates and reducing the, the money supply. If they will reduce it, you know that's also a big question. When they will do it, that's also it, a It'll big blow up the economy everywhere in the world, right? I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what what happens to to crypto when, when there is a liquidity uh, drain, you know, overall in the market. Well,
1: well, fair to say, we saw that in March of last year, mm. right? Uh, you know, we like we're we're all we all markets crashed, including Bitcoin. You know, went from like nine or ten grand down to four and you know today we're at like 57 so yeah, in the long th- run that
0: th- that was uh, if yeah. you if you look at bitcoin like you would look at the s&p 500 fund and one of the things that everybody will tell you is that, oh in the long run it's better to stay invested than to stay on the sidelines because yes it will crash but eventually it will recover again it, it's funny because i while i agree that that bitcoin itself is not controlled by anybody at the end of the day you know if you own gold you can still convert it into fiat money to buy stuff right and you'll need the same thing for bitcoin so that means that you're still somewhat reliant on i mean you know if you want to these days if you want to put money into bitcoin you need someone to convert that cash into bitcoin right so you're still somewhat reliant on let's say the, the old architecture of how normal money flows you know even right now the banks that that work with exchanges they're generally like smaller banks that that go through all the hassle of compliance all all it takes is for governments to say oh you know you're you're going to need 10 times more compliance and then it just becomes Economically unviable for normal banks to to work to work with Bitcoin.
1: That's true. Um, you know, governments could uh, shut down the on ramps to Bitcoin, but certainly it would not kill Bitcoin. Yeah, right. Yeah, it will um, just make it harder and, for, and for the and average I, person. I think I think a good way to think about like Bitcoin, like as an asset versus a currency. Like for example, like like perhaps you own Apple stock, right, or Tesla stock. The fact that you can't go to the coffee shop downstairs and buy your coffee with it—it it doesn't make it any less valuable yeah. because it's an asset, right? Like, like you buy it because you, be, you know, you believe it will go up in value over time, uh, and it's something that you're probably willing to hold for many years or or even decades. So, um, I think first and foremost, Bitcoin is a long duration asset, and it's proven to uh, perform very well, you know, as that asset. I think that, I mean, there are countries like El Salvador now where you can buy a McDonald's or like go to any shop and pay in Bitcoin. It's true. Um, but of course, it's not widely adopted. Um, I think perhaps over the next five to 10 years, like Bitcoin will 50x, 100x in, uh, in market cap. And uh, as Bitcoin uh, sucks the monetary you know premium out of um, other asset classes, like, like there's a point where it will stop growing, right? Uh, like it'll slow down. And at that point, where its value is relatively stable, it'll be much more common for people to be using it to pay. But uh, yeah, of course, we're not there yet, and has to. Yeah, I mean, get because
0: I mean, it's a great example. Like, um, it's the same thing with inflation, right? I mean, it's a funny example to put it up. It's like, why would I pay you in Bitcoin today if I expect it to be much higher value tomorrow? Then you'd rather just keep
1: the Bitcoin and pay you in dollars, for example. It, it's true but I, I you know there are some bitcoiners that are like 100 percent in Bitcoin and that's all I got and oh so. I
0: know I, I know these t- I, I, we I think uh, the person who, who put us in contact he, yeah. he is he's is like that you know he said oh I don't have any anything else I just have Bitcoin I said great you know I mean it's good for him if he can live with that uh, volatility and he has no kids right I think yeah that, that yeah. helps you know, mm-hmm. right but uh That's why I'm saying that, you know, whoever is smart, they'll just keep their Bitcoin and they'll pay you in dollars because you're basically paying someone in the the inflationary currency while you get to keep the deflationary one, right? The problem with deflation is also that it kind of kills the incentive to work because why would you put in the work, you know, to like if you're getting paid in Bitcoin, uh, sorry, if, yeah, if you're, if you're having to, to expend in Bitcoin, to get paid a little bit, so the 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 money that you get from your work might be less
1: than the just keeping the value of your expenses. Does that make sense? Like you're saying, why would you work when like your your uh, purchasing power goes up over time because yeah. of Bitcoin? Well, uh I, I guess uh, that would be an enviable position, enviable position for anybody to be in, uh, right? Uh I, I think it's like the, the argument: why would someone spend this if it goes up in price? Well, like we need to be buy food. We need to like you know buy an apartment uh you know you want to send your your mother on a vacation somewhere like i mean there are things that you know we need to buy no matter what and things that we value more than the appreciated price of what we own today so yeah like you know central banks and keynesians are saying like well we need inflation we need some inflation because otherwise nobody will buy anything and the economy will collapse but like no like you know i mean i i believe that uh, no matter what people will still want to go out to eat people will want to go on vacation like and uh you know, and and let's say like, uh, if you take a you know if you look at one hundred percent of my net worth, uh, and like let's say I'm shaving off 05 percent or one percent a year for my life. I mean, yes, I could try to reduce that to almost nothing, but like, no, I want a high quality of life. So, you know, the same way that uh, you know, it perhaps you want to uh, you know buy a yacht and uh, you, you sell some stocks to get it. Like you you value the the yacht more than the uh, appreciated price of that stock, right?
0: Look in the long run. I I also believe that it will change uh, many things Uh, in the long run. I also believe that it has the potential to just substitute gold. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, it it will be very interesting to see where will it ever become a transactional, a real life transactional currency, let's Mm -hmm. say that way. But as a value storage. Yeah, I I agree with you. So it's probably it's very interesting. Because um, for a value storage to be worth something, especially in the case of Bitcoin, other people have to agree on it. It's not like back in the day you needed gold for industrial applications or, or you know, for example, gold is a very good heat insulator. You, right. know, you could at least use it for like real life things. But then again, when you look at it on at, at another level, you know, I think most assets at some to some extent, uh, not like hard assets like real estate or whatever,
1: mm-hmm.
0: most assets are are anyway based on. A mutual understanding of its value between people or between a, or in the mark on a market. So it's it's very interesting. I know a lot of people that they believed in it very early on. I think they most of them they're doing quite well now. And uh, I I never really invested much into it. But in the last couple of years, I think it's it started to you know just build up a small position. Just you know if it if it is as you say it will be fifty or or hundred times higher. Then, then even a small position like that will be okay. You know, I, I I'll be quite happy if, with that. But I would say that, for, from my perspective, I'm more in, when it comes to investing. I'm still in the more traditional bucket. You know, I, I like to to try and find companies that that are still somewhat undervalued, and uh, let's see if I if I
1: turn out to be right in the next couple of years. And and, and in regards to that, are you talking about pro- like private companies that you yeah, invest in, or no, public? Uh, no, I big mean stocks.
0: I have had the opportunity to invest into private companies. I haven't done it yet. I do feel that, uh, especially with startups, it's, it's really a gamble many of the times. And honestly, if it, if it comes to that, then I said, uh, I, I can just, uh, I mean, I have a friend who's done very, very well with angel investing. I'm talking like he actually hit the unicorn, which is, which is quite a you know, a rare thing to do for someone. But uh, at the same time, it's mostly public companies that I'm investing in right now. i never done anything into private. I've had the chance, stepped away at the last moment. I still have a couple options open, especially the fact that now here in Dubai, you meet always people that that are kind of building something new or in Estonia, you know, it's also kind of a known hub for startups, but I I find it hard sometimes to to invest into private companies because, you know, I I like myself. I always ran my companies profitably Mm -hmm. or I try to at least. Whereas, when I, as far as I understand, you know, with private companies and startups, especially in the tech world, it's kind of not cool if you even make money. You know, you have to burn it all and make growth. The other day I had a call with the company. They they do, um, allegedly, they, they can predict how your advertisement is going to do before you even load it up to Facebook. So they use AI to determine, you know, how has historically a similar ad like this one performed and what would you ch- should you change on your ad? I find that very hard to believe because sometimes even you know you throw up a campaign and you have three campaigns, three same campaigns, and then actually they perform entirely different because it sometimes it just turns out that the algorithm just liked one campaign more, you know, or or that maybe that it got more signals early on and the campaign turned out to be more profitable. But that's not what I was, I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at here is they were telling me that they had a they were a company from Lithuania. Like it's a Baltic state. Yeah, employees are not as cheap as they used to be. But their burn rate with 30 employees was, was massive. They had like 30 employees and their burn rate was, I think, 200,000 a month. And I thought to myself, what the... How on earth can you have 30 employees in Lithuania unless they're all 30 machine learning engineers earning 5,000 euros a month, which, you know, I think the average IT salary in Estonia, which is slightly higher salaries than, than, in, than in Lithuania, is around 3.5K. So even then you wouldn't be nearly as much at 200K. So either they're just paying themselves a big chunk of money and burning through the cash or they are just having way too much fun. I don't know. And I said to them, you do realize that, you know, if I come in with 100K, which was kind of what what they were asking me, I said, it's going to keep you alive for two weeks. So, you know, what's the point? Even on, on, it's like, you shouldn't be talking to an angel investor at this point anymore. You should be talking to a fund. Uh, So I pass on that. But I, I just thought it was very interesting I mean, if I would go to someone on a phone call and I would say this, I would almost feel ashamed asking for this type of money at this type of burn rate, still not profitable after a couple of years. You know, I'm sure the guy had no bad intentions in mind. That's not what I'm getting at, but it's like, for me, it would feel weird. And, and like, what are you buying? you buy? yeah, I, I don't know. And and I, I would feel almost ashamed, you know? It's like, how do I have, I mean, you need balls to ask. So prop, props for, for someone to, to go through that. But, you know, for me, maybe because I grew up in, in in a more traditional place and I feel like Switzerland is, is not necessarily a startup place you kind of get triggered into your head that you know budgeting you need to be careful with the money you spend then right. you the company should be profitable you know and yeah I get it you know the first year you try I like bootstrapping stuff to me that's why I like it because it's like come on you're starting out the business but you're bootstrapping it you, you can you can try and you know and build like a new entirely new business and with a very cheap cost. Because I remember talking to a friend of mine whose parents used to own a chain of gas stations. And I used to complain to him how, you know, people would just copy our campaigns. And he's like, how much do you spend on your campaigns? I'm like, well, it's like a thousand bucks testing budget, you know, to start out. He's like, yeah, no one's ever copied our, our gas stations. And I, and I said, ha ha. He said, well, you know, <laughs> you need at least a half a million euros to, to put a gas station up. That, that puts kind of a good moat in terms of, where are they going to put up their gas stations? So it's like, uh, as like, yeah, kind of makes sense. But then, uh, still, I think uh,
1: bootstrapping is a very, I think it's it's a uh, it's a good way to start, nonetheless. I, I always bootstrapped. Um, I, I respect anyone that builds a successful company. But uh, yeah, the, the world of like, you know, you know, Twitter's never turned a profit. Uber's never turned a profit. Like, like this world, um, it it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And uh, I suppose that's why I'm uh, not as wealthy as all the all the cats in San Francisco. It's funny, right? I feel like it's a, sometimes they just hype each other up, you know.
0: And uh, you know, I, I feel like um, Baltic states have recently tried very much to to get into the startup game heavily. And I think Estonia has the highest per capita unicorns in the world. I think next to Israel, or just top three at least. I don't know. I might be wrong. Correct me on that. But uh, I also feel that many times there's just a lot of hot air blowing around and they're just like juggling themselves higher and higher, you know, on some crazy idea.
1: You know, earlier uh, in this conversation, you mentioned that uh, you, like you kind of credited, you know, American culture of like, you know, like like business uh, oriented culture and like openness to like the startup culture in the US. But I, I think a big part of it also is the fact that uh, the US uh, has the world reserve currency, which they can print as much of at any time as they want. And then like people that are close to the money printer are going to uh, have access to those uh, dollars first before they depreciate because of inflation, right? So like, you know, think of how fast the uh, tech companies in San Francisco can get that money like before everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, when, you know, last year when the Fed printed their, you know, however many trillions of dollars, like, you know, the Fed was directly buying Apple bonds and like all the stuff. Yeah. So like that money goes to Silicon Valley first, and it's got to go somewhere. So like, you don't have a profitable business, but uh, we have this like $10 billion and like, okay, take take 500 mil and like you take 500 and, you know, so I, I think that has a big part in it. And, uh, you know, it should Bitcoin succeed. And like, uh, you know, that is the uh, monetary standard that the whole world operates. on. I, I, I don't think that there'd be the same San Francisco or Silicon Valley that we have today because, you know, you, you can't just burn money forever and uh, and create value in that way. And, uh, you know, the, the same way that, like, China and U.S. you know are kind of fighting, like, for example, Chinese companies, like, they're getting business secrets that the Chinese government steal from other nations, right? So, like, the Chinese companies are an extension of the government, and, and those companies benefit tremendously from this. Whereas, like, I mean, probably they do, but, like, let's just assume they don't do that in U.S., right? So, um, we have these, like, nation-state-level like attacks going on, and uh, you know, if China wants to have its own Silicon Valley, like they also have to like just print a bunch of money and pump it into some like tech hubs too. Which
0: they kind of do with Shenzhen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as far as I understand, all the Chinese companies with a certain amount of employees need to have a, a communist party member at the board. So what you're saying that you know they they own the Chinese government owns a lot of these tech companies, is true. It's one of the reasons why Huawei is having so many issues. And uh, I think at the same time, though, risk-taking is not as, as encouraged in communist and more authoritarian societies because you're one of the reasons the government is in power is because they'll take care of you. That's kind of their guarantee. So I feel that, you know, actually, the probably when you look at, at innovations, Probably then the next innovation is going to come out of of India or out of uh, some poor country, which has a lot of, uh,
1: you know, you have a lot of upside. You don't have much downside because what's the difference of being poor? Dude, how hard do we work when we had nothing? And like when you had your three months to figure shit out? A lot
0: more, a lot more. And then also you just think to yourself, and they just have a huge amount of manpower, just like China does. And they'll also have less restrictions on what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. But it, it's funny. I mean, what you point out is also that Silicon Valley has ringed by itself for a long time in terms of tech, you know, I mean, Twitter and Facebook just from one day to another decided to, to just cancel out the, the president, you know, the just, sitting president just happened to be on the day that he was going out or one of the days that they couldn't really have done much against it anymore. Right. I mean, you had four other years to do it. Why right? He was doing crazy stuff back then as well. Why didn't you do it earlier? You know, it's not like Trump just went crazy from one day to another. He's he's been a fun guy to watch for a long time. Doesn't mean I support him, but he's one thing he is. He is entertaining. And uh, it's funny, you know, people are now criticizing the Chinese government for going hard on on Alibaba and and Tencent and all these companies. But actually, some of the stuff they're doing is rather reasonable. You know, they're saying, hey, you're you're not allowed to to push minors to play video games 24 seven anymore. Hey, you have to allow each other to access each other's um, each other's platforms. You know, for example, I guess now Alibaba has access to WeChat. You know, and it was all just walled gardens before. You know, and, and funny enough, they're actually forcing these companies to be more free mar- in, on a free market than than they were actually before. So people are kind of looking at this from a from a wrong wrong point of view, in my opinion. Maybe we should also look into that from our side. I mean. NVIDIA bought ARM uh, or, or at least wants to. And then, I mean, how does nobody think it's a little bit risky that, you know, they're just buying the biggest designer for, uh, of, of mobile CPUs and then they'll have a monopoly basically on on, on mobile, computer, mobile processing units, which are probably the most important ones right now. Right. Um, and then they're surprised that, that the UK regulatory commission doesn't want this to happen. You know, and I was, I've been telling it to, to everybody. I say, hey, I mean, I love NVIDIA. It's a great company. You know, I, I own shares in it. But is this ARM deal going to go through? Mm, maybe not. Maybe it is. I don't know. But it would definitely not happen in China right now. I can tell you that because they want innovation and you cannot have innovation when all the power is concentrated on five different companies.
1: Yeah, that's a, that was an interesting move. Like I, I, I did not expect uh, you know China or really any company or uh, excuse me country to uh, just whack their top corporations like that.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't think they wrecked them. I think that it's for the long run. In the long run, it's a it's a good call. For in the long run, you shouldn't just look at it from a negative point of view, but also that hey, you know they'll get kind of advantages into each other's systems now, and. You know, knowing knowing the way it is,
1: I'm quite sure they they'll still manage to go one way or another. Awesome. Well, Ricardo, we've been going for about an hour and a half. It's been great to chat with you, dude. Do you want to uh, tell the audience, uh, you know, maybe where they can find you, or or uh, maybe some final message uh, uh, for the uh, listeners? Not really. I just uh, I
0: appreciate your time. It's been interesting. I haven't done this in a long, long time. And uh, hopefully this uh, this becomes a, a podcast that uh, that will grow. And uh, I wish you the best. And maybe in a couple of years time, we'll sit together again and I'll have some more
1: stories to tell. Dude, you have some great stories, man. Thank you so much for everything. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Renaissance podcast. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at Kentaro.com. Thanks again and see you next time.